Hello, my name is Paula Widobro and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, what's up? Hey, Ben, we're here again. And it's the new year. It's 2020. 2020. Very excited. Last year was the best year ever for the podcast. I think this year might even be better than last year. It has to. And, you know, we we went out with a bang with Walt Lloyd, which is fantastic. We've only been talking about seven years now. Like My God. And it was so much fun to talk to Walt again. And it's not that I don't talk to him very often, but the way this whole business works is you know somebody and unless you're working with them sometimes, you just don't get around to seeing them. It's a great friend you haven't seen in six years. Yeah. And I just love the guy to death. I mean, he's really just a wonderful guy. He's, uh, I think, a visionary cinematographer, but above all, he's just a a sweet, warm, wonderful person. Uh, Alana put together a wonderful sort of promo that has gone out on Instagram and stuff like that. And I would say that if you didn't listen to Walt Lloyd and you're like, you know, who is this Walt Lloyd? Who is Walt Lloyd? He's not nominated for best cinematography this year. I don't (laughs) care who he is. I would say actually just go to our Instagram. And this is like a little, this is a little plug right now too. If you like the show, please go to our Instagram and and follow us. I think we're, we're approaching 375 people or something like that. So that's not very many. I know, but we're just, you know, we're, we're we're late to the game, but you can watch the little promo for uh, Walt Lloyd, which is quite entertaining. He tells a great story about, uh, Steven Soderbergh in the little promo. He's awesome. So, Ilya, who's on the big show today? Uh, Paula Hodobra. Which is one of one somebody who we were both outrageously excited to get on because she shoots Barry. Yes, Barry, a fantastic HBO series. If you've not seen Barry, what's wrong with you? Go watch Barry. Go Barry, watch Barry. Barry. Barry's great. And there is an episode of Barry from last season. Well, it's the second season. There's only two seasons so far. Yeah, but your, your favorite uh, like half hour or hour of television yeah, ever. I, and I remember yeah. it aired the same day as the final episode of Game of Thrones, which everyone was all getting all frothy and worked up about. And it's like, I watched Game of Thrones. I had whatever thoughts I have about the end of Game of Thrones. And then I watched Barry and I I was like, holy shit, this is way better than this episode of Game of Thrones. I just love it. It's just a, a work of, of pure art. And it was great to talk to her and find out about kind of the construction of that episode. You know, and, and great for, for HBO, too, because they had like two different types of like counter programming right there. Yeah. And both of them played absolutely to to their base. And there was some crossover like us. We both watched both of them. And yeah. Yeah, that 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 Barry episode is fantastic. It was pretty amazing. It's a little bit like uh, watching uh, they they do, they do the counter programming thing pretty well. They had Silicon Valley running against Watchmen mm. just recently. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, you know one of the things that uh, one of the things that Game of Thrones got a lot of heat for in that final season was the very very dark episode. Do you remember the the episode on? Oh I'm boy, about? do I! Yes. So that brings us to the uh, George Foyt. Close focus, which I kind of feel like we need a sound effect to like zing in there or something. We like just that. need to record George like saying his name. We're like Yahoo or we something. Need to do something. So, we'll work uh, something up maybe. All right. So anyway, hey, you know, listeners, come up with a George Foyt close focus uh, zippy sound, and maybe we'll use it. <laughs> it it'll happen. It, it really will. Anyway, so you might remember that episode of Game of Thrones, and there was a lot of uh, ink spilled essentially from people going like, "It didn't look right on my TV. I had to turn my TV up like n- the brightness up all the way. I had to like do all this stuff to try to see an image." Well, there is a movement happening right now. 
so that you at home on your screen can see whatever it is that you are watching exactly as the filmmaker intended Sort of. It's called Filmmaker Mode. Have you have you heard about this? I did see a presentation of Filmmaker Mode at the Directors Guild a few months ago. They do a thing every year that I think I talked about on the podcast a while ago called Digital Days. Digital Days, yeah. And they, uh, they you know, this year they have John Favreau there talking about how they made The Lion King. And they had the ILM crew there talking about how they'd done the VFX for The Irishman. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, in fact, they had a presentation about Filmmaker Mode. But you probably know way more about it than I do. So I'll let you take the lead. <laughs> well, there's a consortium of different manufacturers who've all kind of gotten together with hopes of solving this problem. This this problem and it wasn't it didn't begin and end with uh, that one particular episode of Game of Thrones. Really what's been going on I got to be honest, I feel like we did see that the way that they had intended and they intended it to be too dark. That's my that's my personal belief is that that was intended to be hard to see. You know what? It worked okay for me. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I was, uh, I, I spent the whole episode being like, what the fuck just happened? Who just died? What yeah. the fuck? Well, pretty much if you want to see things the way that it's intended, a bunch of different steps have to happen. And it, it starts with the mastering of whatever it is that you're seeing. People in post-production have uh, a certain set of parameters that they must meet in order to make sure that things look and sound the way they're supposed to before they get compressed down to the tiny little signal that a lot of us are watching right now. Can I now. ask you a real yeah. question uh, before we go any further with this? Yeah. How is this different uh, outside of it being televisions versus projection from DCP technology, which is how we deliver uh, feature films to movie theaters now? Oh, it's pretty different. And, and even though that we do that, it's it's possible that you're your theater could also be wrong. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully your theater is calibrated correctly and your projector mm. is inside the right. But the whole point of DCP, to, I mean, like movie DCP is uh, movie theaters have always been wildly different because like if you don't change out your projector bulb after a while, it starts projecting more warmly than it did at the beginning of its life. Blah, blah, blah. Yes, that's true. But uh, really what we're trying to talk about is consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, DCP has serves many masters uh, being able to, no pun intended, move your 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 master files, your master project yeah. uh, to the theater. And you can hopefully see it the way it's supposed to. But there's also digital rights management and other things built into DCP, uh, which is very important for piracy and security mm-hmm. and, and everything else. Uh, what's going on with filmmaker mode is really from the consumer electronics standpoint and actually i'm going to be in vegas on monday when the, i think there is a i'm press so release. sorry that you're going to be in vegas well it's for the consumer electronics show you where like vegas I, I i don't like vegas but uh I i'm have, a little I, agnostic about i vegas. have a little work in vegas there's a thing going on called digital hollywood it's mm-hmm. part of ces and i'm going to be out there for that anyway um but filmmaker so if mode, you see if you're at digital hollywood and you see Ilya, go up and demand a t-shirt go on Ilya. <laughs> Thankfully, by the time this episode goes live, that will be over. Oh. <laughs> so uh, so you will not be able to go so, up to me and ask for a T-shirt. Time travelers listening to this. Time travelers, you can, yeah, you can, you can, you can will blow time, my mind. Do it, do yeah. it. Anyway. <laughs> or he'll give you the shirt off his back right there and then. I, I will then be half naked, but it's Vegas, so I guess it's okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so what filmmaker mode is it is trying to do or purporting to do is take away some of the problems that comes with your screen not being calibrated and uh, sending the flags, the metadata information that that screen needs to know uh, how to be to be able to show that the original content is being displayed in the correct in the correct way. And that could be 
uh, frames per second. It could be color space. It could be high dynamic range. It could be all kinds of things. Yeah. However, what I think will likely happen, and there is going to be this big announcement, so I'm talking about this before the, the announcement's been made, but I think it's going to be somewhat watered down because really what you're talking about doing is really, really hard from a technical standpoint. Well, especially from a manufacturing standpoint because you have to get competitors to all agree on something. Correct. And then after you do all of these things, it turns out that a lot of consumers don't like what the filmmakers are, are are trying to do and there might be multiple modes because some people watch in a brightly lit room some people watch in a dark room uh, when you're in a theater the screen is supposed to be calibrated to 14 foot Lamberts in people's homes with HDR mode now and stuff too it's like this you know all bets are off this can be all over the place so well filmmaker mode also is something that as a home user you would opt into it's not like the TV comes with it built on and you can't turn it off if you want to watch, you know, uh, seven with the contrast all the way down and the brightness all the way up and all the colors, you know, ridiculous. So it looks <laughs> so posterized and skin. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 on you. That's your problem. That's not, you know, filmmaker mode would be specifically for people who care about this kind of thing. Specifically, my concern is that it doesn't quite deliver what it's supposed to. But the idea is at least to like take a stand, to plant a flag and say, we're working towards this. We're going to do that. And I think Sony... Panasonic, LG. There's a bunch of people. Uh, there's a bunch of people who have said they were going to support this. Actually, I, I'm not sure if it's now Sony, but I know LG, Panasonic, Vizio. There's some people who are launching. Sony supposedly has a mode that will come pre-calibrated. And the way that you got around this uh, today without a filmmaker mode is you have someone who calibrates your screen for you. It's usually kind of an expensive process. Yes. And my understanding though is that filmmaker mode does not take away that. So the the idea is like. It's not going to give you like that full calibrated screen. It's just going to say like, here's the basics here. You know, you're in the ballpark and like peace be with you. So, well, I mean, I, I sort of what you're saying, I think makes sense, though. It's like sometimes there's a I'm not going to say it's a problem like, you know, poverty is a problem, but, not, you know, not being able to see movies the way they're intended to be seen is a first world problem is, is definitely a first world problem but but it's <laughs> something that we, is there's a way to do it though. yeah like the, everyone could do it the technology is not that complicated or expensive to fix this issue no it's not but it, there's a willingness that has to go along with it and the willingness has to start at the consumer <laughs> the electronics manufacturers and the content providers everyone in between has to get together and decide they want to do it do you remember i want to say it was like about two three years ago chris mcquarrie and tom cruise made a video that oh yeah i love that video yeah <laughs> where, where they were like, argue, but they were passionately, uh, you know, kind of uh, turn off the smooth scan. Yeah. And, yeah. They, and they really did make it a thing like it, it sort of felt like I wanted a Sarah McLaughlin song to oh, kick in. Yeah. A little bit. It's like, you know, these homeless animals. Exactly. <laughs> That's how it felt. It felt like this it's, is a, a real huge issue. But then you think, OK, well, Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise, their whole life is making these movies that they want them to look a certain way. And it is a huge bummer. <laughs> when you go to like a friend of ours, um, when you go to the theater, well, but you're not going to see smooth scan in a theater, but like a, a friend of ours invited uh, Alicia and I over to their house once. Uh, I have a, I have a really, uh, you will, if you go see a certain Peter Jackson movies. Oh, well, I mean, if you, well, yeah, if you go see Gemini, man, well, if it's, if um, honestly, if that's the way the filmmaker intended you to watch it, then, then go then, with then, God, then that's what you're going to say. But uh, a few years ago, a friend of Alicia's and mine uh, invited us over to their house to watch a really cool horror movie that I've probably talked about called Train to Busan. And they had a huge screen and they were unaware that they had smooth scan on. And then when we turned it off, they're like, I actually prefer it the other way. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, you're fucking wrong. That is, is 
fundamentally not the way to watch a movie. This is the same argument that used to happen way back when with letterboxing. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. And so there were so many people who hated to see the letterbox. Why are there these black bars on my screen? Not understanding that they're actually seeing more than the non-letterbox well, version. When you're talking about, I, I feel like you don't hear that complaint now when everyone has a 4K television in their house. Correct. And, and uh, you know, if they're watching something that's widescreen, that it's letterboxed on, on their widescreen television because the resolution is high. But when you're talking about standard def, which is relatively low resolution, and you're going to cut that down. Uh, the thing was, there was a lot of people back then who could only afford a 13-inch television. Yeah. And then when you did the letterbox, I was one of them. I know I was as well, too. <laughs> but I ended up sitting like two feet from the screen because yeah. that's that's what you did back then because it's so good for your eyes to get I mean, the truth the- is we were all okay with the resolution of VHS video. So, for, you know, for a very long time. You've already uh, kind of, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound on that crap. But um, no, but I mean, I, th- I think that filmmaking mode is to get kind of back to what I was saying like I feel like it's opening a door that hopefully will continue to open I don't think filmmaker mode solves the problem uh, forever but I think that it's like okay if you're watching the Super Bowl and the people who are making the Super Bowl want you to watch it in smooth scan and you put it in this mode and it and it just auto sets everything the way it's intended to be seen by the people who are doing it wouldn't that cool. be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. I mean, <laughs> and, and again, the technology is there. It wouldn't be expensive to do it. It, I think probably, in my humble opinion, the hardest part about this is is twofold. One is getting all of the manufacturers to agree to a standard, uh, you know, i.e. Blu-ray versus HD DVD or back in the day VHS versus Betamax. And the other thing is letting the consumer know why you're doing it at all because consumers you know like my in-laws would never see the value in this no and and that's the thing you are going to have to go out and invest in a new tv set to get filmmaker mode this isn't just going to be like retroactively which which i'm not going to do but also i know how to calibrate my television you know you also there well i suppose it, it could happen it could be like a firmware update to some screens but We'll see what the announcement's going to be. I have a feeling, guess what? Uh, just like, remember when everyone had to go out and buy a 3D TV? I was not one of those people. I, 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 I laughed being, hysterically. Being at NAB that you're being like, you know, uh, manufacturers, you just convinced everyone to spend like $3,500 on a television set, which is like three times more than they've ever spent. And now you want them all to buy a 3D television set? Go fuck yourselves. You know, it's it, it's it's going to be interesting to see uh, CES this week because every year it's about buying TVs and what's the hot new feature. I don't know how big a deal uh, filmmaker mode is going to be but I think that uh, I don't know that it's a selling point I don't know that people are going to buy a TV because it has filmmaker mode on it I think it's something that I think the manufacturers learn to appreciate I think this is your pinky in the air this is your 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 quirk sniffing this is like this is all of your erudite TV watchers out there who want it to be the best image possible and and you know who you are if you ever I mean frankly I'm one of them I just wouldn't go out and spend any significant amount of money on it Currently, well, uh, there'd have to be more. Well, uh, but that being said, if I needed to replace my television and I was looking at two models and one had it, one had it and the other one didn't and they were within $300 of each other, I would go with the filmmaker mode one. uh, uh, Mark my words, there will be filmmaker mode TVs at Costco before you know it. And uh, fine. Yeah. yeah. And that's what it seems like the the market wants. They want a 4K TV. They want to spend $700, maybe a thousand. And that's where like most of the screens are being sold these days. The people who are spending twenty five hundred, thirty five hundred dollars on a screen, not so many anymore. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, all the price on them has has dropped significantly. But when you know, uh, in two thousand five to two thousand ten, when everyone was replacing their standard F televisions with you know like the first generation of consumer HD televisions that sure. were readily available, I remember getting a Sony Bravia HD television. 
and we thought it was the best deal of a lifetime and it was 2500 bucks. Oh yeah. And the 4K television that we got like a year and a half ago I think was like 700. Yep, and that that seems to be the average. I didn't pull that $700 like number out of thin air. I talked to a lot of consumer electronics people and that seems to be about what consumers are spending. I, I think so. that's a fair investment in something that sort of has become a money sucking device anyway is if you have a Roku or whatever, you're renting movies on it, you're using it for a lot more than just like watching cable television. All right, so we've droned on now about filmmaker mode plenty long enough. All right, Ben, so what's up next? Uh, next is our interview with Paula Hadobro. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, I am at Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank, California with Paula Widobro. Did I say it right? Yes. All right, thank you so much for coming out. We're excited to have you here. So uh, to break the ice, one of the questions that we, we always start with is to dig into when, you, when you're reading a script, how you turn the words into pictures. And my operating theory is that cinematographers a lot of times either look at a script and they see how they want to light it or they see how they want to compose the shots. I, the premise of my question could be wrong, but do you find that you are one or the other? I think I start with how it makes me feel, mm-hmm. the script, and if I connect with the story and the characters and then lighting sort of comes more naturally to me Mm -hmm. whereas framing and composition and camera movement is something that I have to think a little bit more about and it's a little bit less instinctual. Uh, why Why does lighting come more naturally to you? I think lighting is more magical or like sort of music like whether you it just happens and and there mm-hmm. it is, whereas framing or or the way that you tell the story with a camera takes a little bit more thought and and you have to process the story a little bit more for me. When you're looking at a script, do you have a process by which you, you kind of break it down or dissect it? Or is, are there specific lenses that you look at it through to kind of come up with what your visual approach would be? Or, or even, you know, before you meet with the director, like what you're going to pitch the director would be your visual approach. Mm, yeah, I mean, I usually read the script at least twice. Mm-hmm. And then I like to read it without stopping all at once. And then the first thing I do is just think about the story and the characters and yeah, just connecting like emotionally with it. And then I start thinking about other movies that sort of remind me of that or other images or mm-hmm. any sort of reference that could make my ideas more clear when I interview for the project. Well, uh, let's let's go back and talk a little bit about your background. At, at what point in your life did you realize that you wanted to pursue filmmaking in general and cinematography in particular? I started taking uh, really good and serious photography classes when I was a teenager at a museum of modern art. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, it was kind of by a happy accident. And, and the teacher was really incredible and would show um, like sort of retrospective of like Maplethorpe or Nan Golding or like there were some photographers that I actually couldn't watch because I was 13 <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of started the process for me oh I'm so, well let me back up even further like what brought you to be taking classes at the Museum of Modern Art oh that was just my mom not knowing what to do with me <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was a it was a great way to sort of start growing up and to go through the teenage years just being interested in photography and culture and that sort of opened the door to cinema and then I was also 
lucky enough to take classes on Buñuel and like French cinema. Mm -hmm. And then I thought I wanted to be a director, but that was because I wasn't really clear what a cinematographer did. And then <laughs> when I went to film school, I very fast realized that I didn't really want to talk to the actors. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah, cinematography became my thing. Where did you go to film school? Mm, I went to the London International Film School. Mm -hmm. And then I went to AFI for cinematography. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, where where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And when did you uh, come to America? I came in 2002 mm -hmm. to go to AFI. But long before that, you were taking classes at the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, but that was just as a teenager. Oh, okay. But so what was it about cinematography besides not talking to actors that drew you uh, to doing it? Well, I, I, I always found magical the process of translating words to images and sort of imagining what the actors would do or how they move and mm -hmm. how you would capture them and how it would make your brain work differently and how it took some sort of magic to make it special. Yeah, it was more like I was just into telling stories with images. And uh, the, like the early stuff that you did, were you were you directing and shooting it? Were you primarily shooting for other people? Like, like at what point did you did you make the commitment to cinematography specifically? Mm, I think I I directed. I mean, everyone had to direct a little bit, but to write it would take me forever, and, and then it was really no story. It was more like I would write images, mm -hmm. so they would make much sense. And then yeah, I think I I was just good at it, and I took to lighting and cameras and it was kind of a natural process for me do you ever uh, look back at the films you made back then at all yeah have you mm. i mean i always wonder if people look at their at their older stuff no i kind of wish i did but i haven't i i did a really cool stop motion animation that took oh, cool. forever and i <laughs> wish i could look at it where is it i mean do you have it uh, i think it's a, it must still be at the film school oh okay yeah i just i don't know it, it took a really long time and it was I was very proud of it. When you're when you're doing this stuff, the film world is kind of in the middle of transitioning from film to digital right around that time. Did you primarily learn with one or the other? Mm, at the London International, uh, I actually learned on 35 and 16 mil. Oh, sweet. Which was really awesome. And that was one of the reasons I decided to go there. Yeah, so I learned how to load film and I don't know also at AFI my thesis film we shot on 35 mil and then we won a grant from I think the Lux so we got to actually print the film oh sweet which you don't really do that anymore <laughs> you so can I, <laughs> yeah I guess you can <laughs> but yeah I got to learn about printer lights and it was really special oh that's cool so what from that discipline do you bring into uh, working? Because I'm, I guess I'm presuming that most, most of the television and stuff that you're shooting is probably in some kind of a digital format. Like what, what are some of the discipline that you learned in the film world that applies to that? Mm, I think testing. I mean, I, I kind of miss the process of testing film stocks because you would get different results and you really had to know what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And I guess now with... Uh, digital, I guess you, I mean, you still have to be disciplined with testing the lenses or the final process and color correction and how you rate the the cameras and then also trying to get your hand on different uh, digital cameras as well. Yeah. 
what do you find uh, in terms of, you know, like I sort of feel like modern cameras are now, they're kind of what film stock used to be where you would have to know what a stock did. And like you said, you have to test it. And it's like every year all these new cameras come out. How much of your time do you dedicate to kind of just staying on top of the technology or do you bother with that at all? Mm, I guess I do not bother as much as I should. <laughs> I, I think probably <laughs> almost every cinematographer would say the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I shoot a lot with Ari Alexa and I, I, I really love it and I feel very comfortable. And then I also like the Sony Venice and I've done my last two projects with it. Oh, cool. So, uh, well, let's talk a, just a hair about film school itself. Um, because I feel like, you know, back in the day, and even when you were there, which wasn't that long ago, a big part of the reason to go to film school would be for access, but also you went to AFI, which is, you know, an extremely connected film program. In, in other words, like it, it helps you make inroads into the industry when you're done. Um, what is the, in your opinion, like is film school as, still as relevant as it used to be? I think for cinematography, it is pretty relevant because you need to learn sort of technical things and then you also need to learn the the cultural aspect and then it's really good to network and to get a chance to meet and sort of learn from other cinematographers and Mm -hmm. then they just put you in a control environment where you really get to learn and I think maybe in the real world you wouldn't get a chance to do that or it would take longer. I mean, I think sometimes sometimes I will hear the argument from filmmakers who are starting out that it's like, well, you could just go buy, you know, a, a DSLR or whatever and a light light kit and and just start working, you know. But I I do think, uh, you know, especially a place like AFI. I don't I don't know enough about the London Film School, but AFI I know they bring in major cinematographers to kind of talk to the students and stuff. And um, like, were there any specific uh, influences that you found when you were there? Yeah, I mean, I think the program was pretty serious when I was going there and and you really had to sort of impress everyone and <laughs> work really hard. And I mean, we would have lighting seminars where like famous cinematographers would come and light the set with us and you would crew for them. So like after film school, what's your process for getting out on your own and, and establishing, you know, your reputation as a, as a DP? Well, when I was still in film school, I was lucky enough to get an internship on um, Lemony Snicket's with Emmanuel Lueski. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that I hear he might be going places. Yes. <laughs> so it, it was really special because it was a huge movie and also getting a chance to see Emmanuel Lueski work was incredible. And, and that was sort of the first professional thing I ever got a chance to watch and learn from. Like what are like some of the lessons or like what what are what are some things that you took away from that? I mean, the way he would light was really incredible and on that movie it was I guess he's evolved a lot from back then, but then it was like he had all the space lights in town and everything <laughs> was a set and I mean it was pretty technical. Yeah, it's a very stylized uh movie. Yeah, it was very stylized and the sets were incredible and I don't know, there were like miniature trains that were made to look real. And so it, it was quite special. So were you on set? Were you like able to observe him at work? Yeah, I was on set every day. Oh, wow. So I would just sort of pass lenses or ask a million <laughs> questions to everyone, to like the ACs or the gaffer and try to like go and look at all the lights and just sort of pay attention and be kind of invisible and try to help. <laughs> as much as I could. 
Are you still in touch with him? Yeah, he's a very nice guy. Oh, cool. I'm still in touch with him. Awesome. So did that springboard you into shooting your own stuff afterwards? Well, I mean, when I was at AFI, I, I did a bunch of short films. And then one of my thesis film won the Student Academy Award. And then I was really sort of pushing to try to get to shoot short films or whatever I could. And at the beginning, it's it's not easy. You have to like really look for the opportunity. Yeah. And then I I shot some short films for the DWW program, which is a, also an AFI thing. And then I just started doing small films, getting paid almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry because I, I I did I did research this, but I missed the Student Academy Award. Well, like, what was the film? What was the name of the film that you shot? It was called Wednesday Afternoon. It was a our student thesis film. It was just maybe ten minutes or mm-hmm. fifteen minutes, but it did pretty well for a student film. That's amazing! <laughs> well, winning the Student yeah. Academy Award is sort of that's the brass ring of making a student film right there. And so, did getting that uh, Academy Award or the film that you shot, getting that uh, Student Academy Award, did that springboard you? Like, did that? Did your phone start ringing at least a little bit as a result? I mean, mm, I know you said. I that mean, not not <laughs> not as much as one would hope. It it still <laughs> took a long time to get more decent jobs. But I would I would choose like short films that would do well in like film festivals, and mm-hmm. it just takes some time to like learn your craft and then get people to trust you with their films. And uh, what was the big break that got you into features? Like, what was your first feature that you shot? I guess my first feature that I really love was called Gardens of the Night mm-hmm. with um, Damien Harris. And I really loved the script and I really connected with Damien and he was very visual. And I think that was the first time where the material sort of was interesting enough. I mean, at first I, I would just want to shoot anything I could get hold of and would yeah. find a way to connect with with that one, I, I really enjoyed it. So you, you selected that as something that you wanted to go after? Yes, definitely. And what was it about it that drew you to the project? It was kind of a hard film. It's a it's about these kids that get kidnapped, so there's kind of really dark tones to it. Mm-hmm. But I really love the idea of watching the story or telling the story through the perspective of the child. And then it intercuts when the child is like seven and then when she's like 17. Mm-hmm. So sort of trying to give two, two voices to the story visually was really interesting for me. And like when you were talking to the director, how did you pitch your take on it? Or how did, how did you end up, like what ended up making you the choice for the film, if you know the answer? I don't know. Mm, I guess because we, we like the same movies and mm-hmm. we had like sort of common references. And then I, I showed him some photographs of like Bill Henson, which he really loved. Who's Bill? I'm, I'm unfamiliar with Bill uh, Hansen. He's a, I, I believe he's Australian. Mm-hmm. And I mean, his work is a little dark, but quite beautiful. Yeah, I guess he just liked my references and sort of my connection with the characters. Sweet. So you go along doing features for a while after that. I, the first feature that you shot that I was aware of was Tallulah, I believe. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's really good. Really cool. And uh, I mean, just kind of talk about like your career kind of in the in the feature realm before we kind of get to television. Well, it it takes a long time or at least it took a long time for me to do movies that people would would see. And I guess Talula was the first one that got to Sundance. And yeah. uh, I thought the story was really good and there was like some great acting. And so I guess that that helped me 
quite a bit. After Tallulah, did the phone start ringing more as a result of that? Yeah, definitely. And what, what brought you to that film? Well, I had shot a, a short film with Sean Heather, the director, mm-hmm. at DWW. So that was still back when I was at AFI. Oh, wow. So we had done that short film and then another one with a Zach Quinto called Doggy Dog. Oh, cool. And then, so we did Talula, and then I just finished another movie with her called Coda that we shot in Massachusetts. Oh, wow, cool. Who's in that one? Eugenio Derbez. It's a coming-of-age story, so the actors are kind of young. I, I hadn't heard about them myself. <laughs> and then, uh, so it's about, like, a deaf family, so three of the actors were actually deaf. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was pretty interesting. Well, I've, I find that your work uh, has kind of a, an interesting intimacy to it. Like, I feel like you, you kind of bring us right into pe- into people's, right right into where they live somehow. There, there's like, when, I, when I've looked at your work, and it's one of the things that I, uh, I really admire about Barry is, is that it's a show that could, could be kind of like a jokey, jokey, funny show, but actually ends up being like very character driven. Is there an approach that you take when making a character driven piece like Tallulah or like Barry or like some of the other stuff that you've done that, uh, is, is there, is there something like, is there advice you would give someone if they were making something that was character driven? I mean, I guess anyone, I mean, the formula, anyone can shoot a, a movie and it's always like close up, close up over <laughs> the shoulder, wide shot. Yeah. So you have to find a way to make it your own or to try to translate a world and make it unique or just make the audience feel something with the images or just capture the details or contribute with the blocking or trying to see the story in a different way that makes you feel something. But to me, your work is more than just like we're in close up. I feel like the actors have the room on your set to move around and interact. It doesn't, and I I don't know if what I'm about to say is true or not, but I feel like they're not pinned down. Like you can't move left. You can't move right. Like they're given a little bit of room to, to breathe and to interact. Is that, is that something that you do or? I mean, I think it depends on the project, but mm-hmm. I try to sort of push myself in a different direction in every project. And I guess I especially like light where, where you don't really notice it, or I guess trying to not always make things as beautiful as as you can or as beautiful as you get tempted to make <laughs> them. And then just trying to find what's right for the story. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about your TV work, you know, because you've done some pretty significant TV work. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I know I already brought it up, but Barry, to me, is one of the best shows on television right now. And the episode's Ronnie Lilly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That episode took a show that I thought was already a brilliant show and kind of like launched it into the pantheon, in my opinion. Like it was such a... People talk about making a TV show that's a mini movie, but like the whole journey of that episode was was just brilliant from start to finish. And it was also, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Hader's directorial debut. Well, he had already done season one. He had directed a bunch of episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's extremely prepared and he's a film buff and he knows all his film references. Mm. And he's very clear what he wants and he shot lists everything. So he's very specific and he likes simplicity as well. And he likes to tell the story, like he likes a lot of information in the shots and and he likes to sort of make reference to other movies as well. 
I mean, when you when you're preparing, and I know that in the television world, a lot of times the prep is a lot shorter than you know in, in a in a feature world. But when you're preparing for something like that, how much conversation do you get in with the director, whether it's Bill Hader or whoever it is, about kind of figuring out? Because again, like that story is told so visually, and it, it almost it's almost a silent film. It's so it's so visually constructed. How much collaboration do you have on that? Or it, like I know in a lot of TV, it's like you're working on the shot list on the day because because you, you know you just haven't had the or you have like one day of going through locations what what what's the prep process like on something like that mm, luckily because i did season one as well i had time with bill to really prepare like the first two episodes we shot together of season one and that's where we really discussed the language of barry and what he was hoping for and then i shot all the episodes on season one and two mm-hmm. so there was no downtime to really prep in between with each director yeah yeah which was uh, a little hard at times <laughs> yeah i guess you have to adapt to each director like even though there's a style for the show every director sort of works differently and and you have to get in their mind space as well well i guess i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself so what brought you into television like how did you get into doing television Mm, well, I actually, my agent sent my reel to uh, Aida Rogers, the producer of uh, Barry, and then mm-hmm. I guess she liked it. And then I just went for an interview and I had never done TV and they asked me, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yeah. So Barry was your first show? Yes. Wow. That's amazing. Yes. And um, correct me if I'm wrong. So did Brandon Trust shoot the pilot or? Yeah, Brandon Trust shot the pilot for Barry. And so, like, I, I'm always interested in this when, when people shoot television. Uh, how much of a cue did you have to take from the look that he put on it? And how much of it are you able to make your own? Mm, I mean, I think Brian and, uh, and Bill had talked a lot about the sort of the look of the show. But I guess the only things we really kept were, like, sort of the wider lenses. And, and Bill really hates over the shoulder. So we always, <laughs> we almost <laughs> never did those. <laughs> And then, I mean, I guess they had established some of the locations, and but I, I was able to sort of make the lighting my own and contribute to the language with Bill. Well, and obviously, you know, like as soon as you take over, it starts to evolve and, and further evolve, and you did two seasons of the show. So, yes. you know, by the end, it's it's very much yours. Can you talk about as you kind of got into the into the swing of it, into the routine of it? What were some of the what were some of the places where you're like, oh, we could take this a little bit further, or like, what are the what are the things that you that you built on, or that you tried, or that you know expanded as you went along? I think one of the things that I really loved about the show was trying to include uh, as much information as possible in the frame. Mm-hmm. And also sort of being restrained with how much violence you showed and then sort of the contrast of the comedy and the crime world <laughs> together and sort of finding images that are funny and a little violent at the same time. Yeah, how, and now like, how do you balance that? Like, how do you find the balance between, you know, because like if it went too funny then the action stuff or the violent stuff would it would feel farcical and it wouldn't it wouldn't it would lose its stakes but if you go too extreme with the violence logic not logic but like my gut would say that like well that that's going to undercut the comedy but this show gets extremely violent at times yeah i mean i guess it was the all in the writing mm-hmm. I, I think the way the show was written balanced 
really well those two worlds and and I think one feeds from the other and I think if it had just been comedy or if it had just been crime it wouldn't be as good I think it's the shock and the combination of both that makes it kind of special Mm -hmm. I mean like is there anything that you do in the way that you're covering it you know like you're saying you're trying to include a lot of information in the frame but can you walk me through that process a little bit? Like if you could give me an example of like a scene from it that you shot at some point where you're like trying to stack something in the frame or, or how you went about doing whatever it was that you did. There's the scene in the garage of um, Passar mm-hmm. and then he's like on the treadmill and, and he's running and he's gets increasingly angry and then he starts running faster and he gets more agitated. And then sort of that's kind of funny, but then what he's saying is, not funny at all and it's kind of (laughs) violent and then there's like all these toys around him that make it seem totally out of place for and then and then you see like the person that he's sort of torturing and and then you try to like frame it in a way that you sort of get all the information Mm -hmm. together and and i think that's where it becomes special (laughs) and i mean like when you're blocking a scene like that does the director, if it was Bill Hader or whoever it was, do they come in with like, here's here's the shot and you're going to see this in the foreground and that in the background and you're not going to comment on this other thing, but it's just going to be there for the audience to kind of discover? Or uh, do you walk in and go like, oh, if I put the camera here, we can see all this crazy shit? Mm, I think it's a combination of both. Bill was very specific with the shots he wanted. Mm-hmm. He would also listen to any suggestions about framing or lighting. He would almost have never an opinion about it. (laughs) And then um, Alec Berg was a little bit more, um, I don't know, I guess guess Bill Hader was more minimalist in his coverage. And whereas um, Alec would, would like to get more options and sort of explore the scene with more coverage and stuff. And Hiro Morai was a little bit more also minimalist but kind of musical in the way he would move the camera or like sort of block the actors and when you're working with i mean obviously these these directors all work on the show intimately anyway but when you're working with different directors to what degree does it become kind of your job to be the the safeguard of the of the look like would you ever say to would you ever no i i know that you would never defy it no one's going to defy the director but would you ever be like well this kind of shot would be a little bit more berry we can do that if if you'd prefer but like are you are you uh safeguarding the look of the show a lot yeah definitely and and i guess on barry because bill was always there he would always be involved as well oh cool he wouldn't really like to do too many takes or too much coverage so I guess he would also have a voice but yeah I mean definitely I would have meetings with the directors and sort of run them through the aesthetic of the show and like how many days would you shoot a show like that in some were five days some were eight days oh wow okay cool yeah I mean it's tight but it's not impossibly tight because the show feels so brilliantly constructed and again I hate to keep harping on it but that Ronnie Lilly episode you know to me is like a work of art Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 brilliant work on on everyone's part. So, what did Barry lead to for you? Because I mean, like you know, that's your first that's your first TV series, and it's an amazing TV series that is really winning amazing accolades across the board and deservedly so. Uh, what has that led to for you? 
I've also done Insecure for HBO. That's a pretty big deal. And then I, I mean, did working for HBO already help you get into that door? I always wonder because because HBO, I, I always see like character actors who are on one HBO show show up on another or directors or. Yeah, I think definitely having done one thing for HBO makes it easier. I mean, if you've never worked for the studio, they, they need to approve their, yeah. the choice of cinematographer. So, yeah, I did Insecure, and then I've done some... I did a pilot for Norman Lear Lear called Guess Who Died. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, who was pretty awesome. God, I mean, he's a legend. I mean, so was he directing it, or was he just writing it, or, like, how hands-on was... No, he was writing it, he wrote it, and then he would come to the set, and then he also did a cameo on the... Oh, wow. ...on the pilot. Who was the director on that? Uh, Adam Bernstein. Oh, Okay. And then I did another uh, show called Weird City for Adam Bernstein as well for YouTube Red. Oh, cool. And then uh, Little America produced by Lee Eisenberg for Apple. We're going to, I think, be talking a lot about Apple TV in the next few years because, you know, like n- no one's been more poised to just kind of jump in and take over the industry. Yes. But, you know, at the same time, like we like it's such an unknown at the moment. What was it like working for for Apple? I mean, like every network has kind of their own vibe. What was the vibe at Apple? Mm, if you I can, mean, if you can say. No, no. I guess I, I didn't really. It was hard to tell what was Apple and what was our producers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they gave us a lot of freedom to do our own thing. Oh, cool. Yeah, and uh, the show Little America. It was all about immigrants. Mm-hmm. So each uh, episode was sort of a short film, almost and. They were not really connected, aside from the fact that they were just immigrant stories. Oh, so is it like an anthology series? Yeah, it's kind of an anthology series. And then um, Barak Naluri was one of the directors, and Deepa Mehta. It was pretty fun. That's awesome. And most recently, uh, you're unfortunately not going to be able to do Barry season three, correct? Because because uh, I will be doing Fargo season four That's in Chicago. <laughs> that is so awesome. So like, again, I, I, I wonder about like when you're taking over the reins of a show that has such a signature look, which kind of its DNA goes all the way back to Roger Deakins and the, and the Fargo movie, how behold, and I don't know, have you already shot it yet or are you getting ready to shoot it? No, I will actually leave in like two weeks to go to Chicago. Okay. So this is maybe a conversation to have after you've already done it, but like as you're preparing to go do that. Are you looking at the original movie? Are you looking at the uh, the other uh, seasons of the show? Like, what are the what are the visual cues to you for the Fargo series? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've, I've been definitely binge watching season two and three of Fargo, sort of taking in the way they move the camera and the way mm-hmm. they block the scenes. And does it take anything from uh, from the original Deacon's work? Like, do you think that there's a visual language that Roger Deacon set in motion that it's continuing at all? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe more to the contemporary Roger Deakins work. Oh, really? Yeah, I think the show is visually pretty elegant and the frames always seem impeccable and there's like a lot of depth and information and the characters are always perfectly f- placed in the frame and, and the lighting is quite beautiful. So I've been sort of taking it all in and hoping I can do the same. <laughs> Is it is it exciting? Is it intimidating? Like, how do you? What are your feelings going into doing it? No, it's really exciting, especially because it's gonna be set in the fifties in Kansas City, so it will be a period film. And oh, cool! It'll be gangsters. So have you have you done period stuff before? I've done some period film, but never to this extent. And I'm sure the resources will be quite big. 
Now, ha- having worked in feature feature work and television, I, I, I'm not saying you have to say like which one is your preference necessarily, but like what are the differences? What are the advantages of each? I guess is is my real question. I guess the difference is on television, you out like you rotate directors, so so you get attached to someone, and then mm-hmm. the next episode somebody else. So it takes a little bit of adjustment to get to know them. Whereas a movie, it's just one master mm-hmm. sort of and then you get to really prepare and you get to like really leave the movie with them and they tend to be more attached and more passionate about the project whereas a um, tv director like still has to keep the language of the show or like follow a little bit the voice of the showrunners and the writers well also like if if you could discuss maybe this aspect you know from a cinematography point of view like if you're making a film you can kind of create a visual arc that starts somewhere and concludes but television is you know like you're you're creating a perpetual motion machine like if if everyone's lucky and everyone's happy Barry could go on for another 10 years who knows so like you're not creating a closed arc visually do you think of it in those kinds of terms like when you're making a movie are you are you kind of sculpting an arc with lenses or lighting or colors or whatever you're working with and how does how do you find how do you scratch that itch in the television world yeah i guess i guess with movies you have a lot more time to think about the story and sort of like the beginning middle and end whereas uh yeah tv you sort of have to be a little bit faster and carry the vision but Mm. it's just a little more brief i guess are you working on a visual arc like on an individual episode of a show for instance it depends on the episode like Mm. ronnie and lily bill wanted it to be minimalistic and sort of minimal well yeah sort of like simple in the amount of shots that would tell the story yeah and he didn't want to like chop it up into multiple angles and he wanted to sort of take the action in and let the actors play with the frame and sort of watch what was happening without looking away. And that was kind of one of the exercises of that episode, which made it very interesting for me. When you're in prep on a movie, what are the steps you go through as you're reading the script, as you're talking to the director, as you're going to locations? The important thing for me is before you actually start working on the project to get the language established and get the world clear on your head and Mm. and to get sort of the direction of of the movie and then what you're bringing into the table and then I guess spending the time talking to the director and imagining things and the blocking and I guess once you actually start doing it you are more focused on the time or like problem solving or having to make things happen and and I think you have to like sort of remind yourself of why you're doing everything. <laughs> How do you go about establishing the visual language of any project that you're working on? How do you do it? I'm not saying how is it done. I'm saying how do you specifically approach it? I guess I try to think what makes this world unique or what it feels like to be that character or trying to feel what they feel or mm-hmm. trying to see the world in a way that brings you closer to them. Like the the movie I just did, the Coda, it's about a a family that's deaf. Mm -hmm. So they see things differently than hearing people. And I mean, they're a lot more visual and have to take cues from looking because they they cannot hear. So that was kind of something that informed the, the way we would cover the scenes. And then also if you like with hearing people, you, you can start 
a scene and then even if it's on someone's face you you can sort of hear somebody else's voice so you know who is talking yeah but if you're signing you don't really know who's <laughs> saying the words even if it's subtitles yeah yeah so that's kind of a, a thing to oh, think that's about crazy i never thought about that yeah and then you also have to be able to frame their hands because that's the way they're communicating and i guess people like also the way you block scenes for that movie like if if someone's walking away they can't really like people have to actually look at each other to communicate so that made it its own sort of set of challenges and opportunities how, how like how involved are you in blocking a scene i guess i it depends on the director but usually i mean i, I love when we have the time ahead ahead of time to discuss the scene with the director and then he it starts usually by him or her telling me what he thinks about and then i'm like oh what if this or what if that and then mm -hmm. when we actually rehearse the scene i take a look at the the blocking and i and and sometimes i'm like oh well it may help us if this person goes here instead of there or sometimes for for time's sake or other times because you get a chance to frame things in a special way or it tells you more about the story I mean, you have to be delicate and subtle and <laughs> not get in the way, but I think well, it's obviously, great. You know, it, it depends on who's directing, obviously, you know, yeah. but, um, you know, I mean, we, we have spoken to people who some, some DPs, I feel like tend to get involved in the, in the, in the blocking or at least heavily suggestive in the blocking, but also, you know, I, I, it always depends on the, the relationship with the director. Yeah. And also, I guess for some actors, like whether age or I don't know, you, you have to be more aware of where they're sitting and how the light will hit them and yeah. just to make them look better than others. Or Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming out. Before we go, is there a place, do you have a website or uh, Instagram or something where people can see your work? Yeah, it's uh, paulawithobro.com. That's my website. And I think my Instagram is pwithobro. Cool. Well, check that out. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you. All right, that was Paula Hadobro. Thank you so much for coming on. It was outrageously exciting to talk to you and uh, can't wait to see what you shoot next. That's right. I think there's going to be another season of Barry. Uh, there better be a fucking other season of Barry. I'm cursing a lot this episode. Happy you, New Year. Yeah, you, you spent a bunch of hours on a plane. You uh, With a baby. And in-laws and things. It's the holidays sort I, of. And now, I, and now I don't you're a get cursing too, machine. Too, I don't want to get too deep into the baby stuff, but I just want to say I had to change on, on airplanes three diapers. And then you spent today, like, you know, at the doctor with the baby. Yes. So, so it's been kind of a baby thing. And so, like, it's, yeah, it's coming now, out of now me. Now the baby's gone. Time to curse. Time to drop some F-bombs. Yeah, and not to mention, it. how many times did we say baby just now? Ben Katz, the editor, is going to be having a field day with all these dings, dings, yeah. from the, uh, all these sound effects of, of all the swear jars from baby talk. Anyway. Sorry hey. about that, everybody. Baby, baby, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so hey, we have to pay the bills. All right, let's do it. So, uh, in front of me right now, actually, is this little light from? He's a, not lying. It's directly in front of him. It is directly in front of me from a, from our friends at Aperture. Aperture makes high quality and very affordable uh, LED lighting for all kinds of applications. And if you are a, a YouTube person in particular, I hear it uh, on occasion. I talk to some people who have some stuff to do with YouTube, and they tell me everything's too expensive. They're getting into filmmaking, but everything's too expensive. They need something that is affordable. Well, Aperture has got a light that is 39 bucks. What? I know, 39 bucks. It's a 
size of like maybe a stack of five or six credit cards. I spend more money than that on Starbucks per week. I, I, I <laughs> coffee addict. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> anyway, so uh, but but Aperture's little tiny light here. It's called the ALM9. The Is a- that the one that I'm looking at right now? No, that's not. That's a different one. Oh. That's a, not, not, thanks a lot, Ben. I appreciate you. I ruined the whole you, mystique you of... But there is an aperture light right in front of me, but slightly different. The ALM9 uh, can fit in your pocket. It can run for a, a nice long period of time. It weighs 140 grams. It weighs almost nothing. And it's got... Grams? Yeah, I know. It's 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 weighs... It's really light. Uh, I'm just making fun shoot. of you giving throwing down the metric system. You know what? Uh, when you're talking about something that light, the grams are uh, the grams are appropriate for sure. Fair, fair. I, okay. just, I just don't know how to convert grams to... Uh, I mean, <laughs> we talk about millimeters here all the time. So anyway, go on. Are you converting it? I am. I'm converting it for you right now. That's 4.9 ounces. Oh my God, that's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. So you know, it's a few paper clips for sure, but still, that's that's not much. Anyway, Aperture made this cool light. Uh, it fits right on top of the hot shoe of your camera. It can be recharged. It's a rechargeable thing. It's uh, just daylight colored. But hey, uh, if you're on YouTube and you're tired of looking like uh, you're in the shadows or you're looking dark or something like that. the raccoon eye situation. You know what? Is it dimmable? It's totally dimmable. And I know someone who used it on something pretty, pretty fancy lately. And basically you can pull out of your pocket what you can do. Roger Deakins did all of 1917 with just this light. Tell me. No, I'm sure that is not true. But anyway, uh, Aperture ALM9. $39, uh, also, of course, available at Hot Rod Cameras. If you need a light, check it out. It is not going to set you back much money, and it really is pretty incredible for what it is, which is tiny and battery-powered. Awesome. And now, short ends. So, Ben, uh, we've reached our famed short end. Famed. Yes. What? What is your? What is, okay, maybe not famed. Our slightly famous between the two of us. And yes, controversial. <laughs> uh, my obsession, because it's it's the beginning of the year. Yeah. And I always look, when I see that a movie's coming out, like at the beginning of January, mm-hmm. I know that it fits into one of two categories for the studio that's releasing it. Because the first two months of the year are really Oscar season. So mm-hmm. by this Definitely. point, you and I both probably have a shelf in our house covered with Oscar screener DVDs. Yes. DVDs. Why DVDs? You know what? It, <laughs> the screening links... Uh, pain in the butt, and I don't think they look any better. Well, send us Blu-rays. Blu-rays would be better. I would, I would rather, but I feel like you could give us a HD screening. Like you could. DVD is, it's just they get scratched. They whatever. Um, but anyway, so we have all these DVDs. We're deep into like prestige movie season right now. So and also Cats. Mm. So we're up to our, our our eyeballs in this, and then. Unfortunately, the way the movie business works is they have to still keep releasing movies every week. That's right. New movies have to come out this week. Like the studios couldn't say, "Okay, well, we're in the middle of the Oscar race, so we're just going to let, you know, Jojo Rabbit and 1917 and Parasite like just duke it out at the box office. They got to release new stuff. Like, for instance, today. Like yeah, today, like <laughs> literally today, yes. as we're recording it, a new reboot of the Japanese movie The Grudge came out, for instance. Mm-hmm. And when I and I have not seen that movie, so I'm not actually uh, uh, trying to impugn that movie at all. But when I saw that it was coming out at the beginning of January, I knew one of two things about it. Either it's hardcore counter programming and it's designed to sort of be like, oh, Jesus, I'm tired of prestigious, great looking movies. and I'm going to go see some populist fun, you know, turn your brain off kind of stuff, which doesn't isn't to say it's garbage. It's just to say it's not it's not trying to be fine literature. 
or it's bad and they're cut and it's and it's a dumping ground and i feel like one of those two things happens now that being said i want to say it was the liam neeson movie taken if it wasn't the first one it was one of the movies that he made was released right at that time of the year and and it was perfect counter programming and i i just think it's it's kind of interesting i i don't know if people who aren't like neck deep in the business i mean i've been paying attention to this for a long time because even when I was in high school, I worked at movie theaters, so I would see the cycles that these things came out in. And when when movies, you know, you kind of know, well, okay, the big summer blockbusters, you can kind of smell that in the air. Sure. Maybe, you know, they start leaking out. They might release one that's kind of a blockbustery film. They don't know if it's really going to do it, like in March or April. And then in May, they start coming. And then, like, June, July, it's just hot and heavy. And then by August, they're kind of releasing the dregs of the summer blockbusters. <laughs> and that leads you right into the prestige movie season. And now we're kind of at, we're at the end of because in order to be in order to qualify for the Oscars, it had to technically be in theaters in 2019. So even if it was in three theaters in Los Angeles and New York, now it's going to go wider, whatever it is. Yes. But also new stuff is coming out That's in 2020. Right. And the new stuff that comes out tends to be odd. And the new stuff that comes out tends to be, at least from the studios, they don't know what the hell it is. They don't know what they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, it's 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 maybe it's kind of like the bric-a-brac. It's the scratch and dent sale. And some of them turn out to be amazing. Like I bet when they released Taken, they were like, "This should be a summer blockbuster," but we're you know we're you know like, but eh, I don't I don't know what their what their thought process was. Like, is Liam Neeson really a, an action hero? I don't know. And then it ends up being humongous. Also, like, I want to say it was Silence of the Lambs, if I'm not mistaken, didn't come out in January, but it came out in like March or February, mm-hmm. was not expected to be a blockbuster, was not expected to be an Oscar contender, ended up sweeping the Oscars in 1991. Mm-hmm. That is the exception. Most movies that come out at the beginning of the year are, they're they're meant to be forgotten by the Oscars. You see horror, you see sometimes light comedy, you mm-hmm. see some, uh, you're right, bric-a-brac, there's a movie called Like a Boss coming out next week. Yeah. And uh, looks looks like broad comedy. And a documentary under- came out this week about Michael Hutchins, the lead singer of uh, NXS. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, why was that not like a possible contender for best documentary? You know, I, I, I would like the studios really to double down, but they have so much focus and attention about winning. I mean, yeah. it really, it's like the, the reason you and I are getting these, these screeners that are coming through the mail is that they, someone wants to win. Someone yeah. wants their stuff seen. They want they want that golden statue. It's it's important to them. So. Well, I mean, and I think that for a lot of those movies, if they don't get that golden statue or at least nominated or noticed during that season, those movies just kind of end up being lost in, in the dustbin of time. There was one that I watched on the plane to Ohio that uh, stars Brad Pitt called Ad Astra, which mm. I didn't see in the theater because I don't get to see movies in the theater very often now. Okay. But um, <laughs> but you don't I was, say I was it's basically heart of darkness in space. What's not to love? It's yeah. apocalypse now in space. Is it a best picture contender? Eh, I don't know, but I thought it was pretty good. But they have not done an Oscar campaign for that movie that I can see. I haven't gotten a DVD and I'm in the director's guild and my wife is in the producer's guild. Usually we one of us at least gets it. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, I should look right now, but isn't that an independently released movie? Isn't that Brad Pitt's company? Isn't that like... Uh, uh, I mean, they produced it, but I think a major studio released it. So, uh, yeah. So, you're right. The, so, uh, Ad Astra did have a uh, did have a studio But, I mean, like, that movie had, like, serious money behind it, and it's got Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones it's in it. It's James Gray, and I would love to have James Gray on this show, which I think is, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I love that he, uh, he seems to be, like, one of the least... Uh, 
you know, most interesting filmmakers out there. But yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. And it's see- and everything about it smells like an Oscar movie, but it, it just, for whatever reason, I, I'm, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe there is an Oscar campaign and I apologize if like, you know, my DVD got lost in the mail and they just, you know, whatever. But I feel like a lot of the movies that I get now, like I, I've probably talked about this on the show before, but it's like, you know, you're supposed to break them or shred them when you're done. And I have a paper shredder. I can put them through. And like, at one point, I just had to make such a great noise when you they put the do. DVDs. It's very, it's, it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. It's like if you've ever smashed porcelain with a sledgehammer. I only bring this up because <laughs> I have. Uh, there is something really satisfying about that. The whole audience sound. just learned a new thing about oh, they sure about did. you and your relationship to toilets. <laughs> um, I didn't say toilet. I just said porcelain. So it could include bathtubs. I'm, I'm reading in, and now you're eating in the microphone. Come on, oh god. Um, <laughs> don't don't blame me. Um, anyway. Uh, I'll go through like a couple of years ago. I like went through my shelves and like cleaned them off of Oscar screeners that I hadn't watched you, yet. You, yeah. And it's like looking through and being like, oh yeah, yeah, I vaguely remember that this was a movie. And it's kind of funny because you think like these movies were made by people with very serious artistic intentions. I feel bad a little bit because they're made by and and they were made to be Oscar movies, sure. and then they just didn't get nominated and they go away. But yeah. but that all being said, I think for our listeners who are looking at like what is playing in your in your local movie theaters what's getting released right now i i think it's interesting to look at it and be like whatever it is is either something the studio didn't have the most faith in or saw as counter programming or didn't quite understand Hmm. and so they were just like okay we're just gonna put it out here and roll the dice because all it can do is compete with the most prestigious films of the year and prestigious obviously doesn't mean best. It's the ones that have been put in our faces as the most prestigious. Yeah, a hundred percent. But if we're talking about populism too, it's like sometimes a big movie could, yeah, it's counter programming, but could, uh, yeah, even though they're prestige movies, they don't always do the great. The well, best. you can overdose on it. I remember th- I'm going to date myself a little bit, but in 1997, I was a projectionist at the Florida film festival, mm. which means that I went through hundreds of 35 and 16 millimeter film prints screening them for audiences, screening them for critics, and of course, as much as I could, watching them myself, because I was right out of film school, and I was really excited to be seeing you, all you these. You had this, you're working in the biz. Yeah, <laughs> as, as much as I can. But I remember when it was over, I was like, I had a moment of like, I need to just go watch a thing. I just need to go enjoy something and not think about the artistic merit of it. And so, as it happened, Face Off was playing. Oh, yeah. It had just come out with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. So much fun. Oh, my God. That movie is so much fun. All the flying (laughs) doves and operatic moves and Nicolas Cage going full Nicolas Cage. Oh, yeah. And oh, I just and it was like exactly what I needed after seeing movies that were all intended to be fine works of art to just see something that is just like popular, easy goes down, unchallenging. And in that in the case of that movie, super weird. Yeah, you could just let it all wash over you. Yeah, sure, sure. You, you you know, you can think about it too hard and be like, well, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta's bodies don't look anything like each other. You just let it go. Just just, <laughs> just don't think about that. Just don't just let it go. Like they're built differently, their voices are different. Oh, there's a reason for all of it. Just move on. Just just accept that it's now John Travolta with Nicolas Cage puppeteering his face and it's wonderful. Well, uh, what is your short angle? <laughs> wow. How do I follow that? I don't know how you follow. Okay. So no, there's no way anyone can follow Nicolas Cage. Uh, I, I won't, I won't even try, but as it is 2020, there was a really nice, uh, little, uh, internet thought piece that, uh, appeared the other day that, uh, I've quite been enjoying and I've been slowly kind of 
getting through. And the reason I, I put it that way is because there's 59 of these. It's a it's a website called Thought Catalog. And in, ni- in the 1920s, they have a compiled list here of 59 quick slang phrases that we should all start using again. And I have to say, it's, it's you know, this is, Hit this me is with just a fun. Okay, here. I, I have seen the listicle and I have not read it in depth. <laughs> Uh, some of them are still being used. Uh, I particularly variety and Hollywood reporter use ankle uh, as to walk, but there's another one here right beneath it, which is applesauce, which means horse feathers. <laughs> I think that I, 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 I'm not joking. I think that I heard a Supreme court justice or someone say that's total applesauce. Yeah. Like right. within the last or, or Joe Biden, maybe it was like, <laughs> it was like an old politician saying that's, that's total applesauce. That, 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 there you go. Old, old white guy. Yeah. yeah Joe Biden. Says applesauce. Banks closed. What you tell someone to stop making out. That's good. (laughs) That was pretty good. Uh, Berries. Wait, did they have a problem with people making out too much back then? I'm guessing they must have. Uh, How about this one? But me. I would like a cigarette is what that means. Oh, interesting. That that, Uh, that does make sense. Let's see here. I Uh, would never like a cigarette, but that's a fun (laughs) expression. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Dewdropper. Like a lollygagger. A slacker who sits around all day and does nothing and is often unemployed. I know this is kind of unconnected, but I was looking at uh, bicycles for my son, even <laughs> though he's way too young. And they make a thing called a balance bike that they give to like really young kids. That's true. And here's what I liked about it is when I looked up what it was, it was based on a thing that was originally called a dandy horse. A dandy horse. That's right. And I'm like, <laughs> I just want to get my son. a. Da- I just want to get me a dandy horse. I want to say, hey, everybody, come on over. We're, we're going to have a dandy horse race. Uh, I like this one. A manacle, which is a wedding ring. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then Jake, as in, okay, fine. As in, don't worry, everything's Jake. Yeah, that's that's. I've heard I've heard that like I think in old noir movies. Yeah, that's that's exactly what what it is. Um, okay, so uh, get, hit me with a couple others. Okay, let's see. Why don't you hit, hit me with some and make me try and guess what they are? So come up with really complicated ones or ones that that don't make logical sense and see if I can figure out what it is. This one, this one you've probably heard before, and you'll groan when I when I tell you. But tomato, tomato is that is that. F- uh, for a woman? That's right. A woman. Oh, okay. A real tomato. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. How about a sinker? Uh, I don't want to get scatological about it, but I got nothing else. <laughs> a donut. A donut? Oh, yeah. Like you're dunking it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so so I'm trying to figure out ways that I can, uh, when I, ways that I can uh, work these into my everyday conversation, but I haven't been able to do it yet. But uh, here's one. A hay burner. Hay burner? Is that like a boxing match? You'd think so, but no, it's a car with poor gas mileage. It's a gas oh. guzzler. It's a hay burner. Oh. Uh, okay, so uh, I like this one. Go chase yourself. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like go fuck yourself, but... It means get out of here. Okay, so it's... it's it, Go fuck yourself is, uh, you know, kissing cousins with that it, it, I, expression. I like uh, giggle water, which is uh, liquor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So. You're not let me guess. All oh, right, okay, I'm sorry. Here, I'll give I'll give you one more. Let's here. just do one more. Okay, a four flusher. A four flusher. I mean, just like sinker, it makes me want to go very scatological. Hold on. Yes, yeah, especially with our president, uh, you know, commander in chief has uh, yeah. been talking about flushing so much lately. So, uh, <laughs> okay, so a four flusher. You you want to guess? A uh, four flusher is. Man, I got nothing. Someone who mooches off of the money of others in order to feign wealth. Hmm. <laughs> a four flusher. I'm not, I'm wow. Not, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly where that means or where that comes from. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't connect the okay, uh, okay, etymology. Okay. Of okay, okay. Or what, okay. One. One less here. 
Bourgeois. I've heard bourgeois, but I don't know what it means. Bullshit. Oh, okay. Bourgeois. This would be like, you know who I'd love to see you like really get into this list is John McWhorter, the host of the podcast Lexicon Valley, which mm. is like one of my all-time favorite podcasts because I just because uh, he would get into like the etymology of like where where these all went, came from. I, I I now have to find that podcast because I'm totally into that sort of thing. Oh, you would love Lexicon Valley. It's so good. <laughs> Lexicon it's, Valley. I'm totally. It's I'm totally so good. good. Everybody should listen to Lex. Stop listening to us and listen to Lexicon Valley. It'll make you smarter. Okay. Here, here one, one last one. A petting pantry. A petting pantry. A petting pantry. Yep. Oh man, I'm gonna go with a horse stable. A cinema. Or movie theater. Oh, man. <laughs> Petting Pantry, that's like a good name for a production company. That's not bad. There, there is another one here, which is, is very popular these days. Uh, Panther Piss. You know, you know what Panther Piss is? That's popular these days? I mean, I know of like... Well, this... what it actually is is popular these days. Oh, okay. Because like I know like Sex Panther joke from uh, the Anchorman movie. No, this no. is Pan- Panther Piss. Panther Piss is very popular today. Okay, so you gave me a big hint that it's very popular today. And it's called Panther Piss. So I'm guessing it's how they refer to reality television back Ooh, then. Oh, no. It's <laughs> it's whiskey. So <laughs> in particular, sort of like moonshine whiskey. Got it. That's yeah. good. Yeah, that's pretty good. All fun. Okay. Okay. So there we go. Um, we'll include the uh, link to that <laughs> listicle. And uh, you can all start incorporating those words into your vocabulary. 1920s vocabulary. Yeah. I mean, let me let me tell you. Who does this well? People like the, uh, the Coen brothers. Oh, my uh, God. Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing. One, one of exactly. my favorite movies of all time. So, uh, but I think that there's a um, a real a real shortage of uh, of writers in Hollywood uh, integrating sort of like the slang of the of the era, and I, I wish there was more of that. Well, and I think also making it fun making because it fun. slang is fun. Think slang of the slang words fun. The slang words that you use today, like the first somebody said, the first on time somebody fleek. Said, I'm sorry. No, the first no, time I was, was, the first time somebody said like this has all the chocolate. You thought that was funny. Because it was slang. It had all of it. Yeah. <laughs> all the, it had all the feels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, slang is always fun. I mean, that Miller's Crossing, that's one of the things that I love about that movie is that like they even make Albert Finney, who was kind of on the older side at that time. He's probably in his 60s. They make him try and talk like young people, which mm. always sounds awkward. Yeah, yeah. And it does. And it's intentionally from him supposed to sound like he's trying to fit in with younger people and failing a little bit. In, you know, uh, even though he can fully murder them all. <laughs> there's also so many great moments of slang though in like Hudsucker Proxy. So I, I mean, just rewatched Hudsucker Proxy like two weeks ago and that movie is just a lost classic. It's so it, great. It, it is really, truly fantastic. All right, uh, Ben, let's, let's, let's thank our intrepid crew and, uh, yeah, well, and, firstly, our producer, Alana Cody, who I would say, uh, more than anyone on earth, uh, deserves credit for how, how our last year went. She, she really, uh, pushed us to uh, put out more episodes. She busted her ass to get these amazing guests that we're getting. She is uh, a tireless uh, producing machine for this show. Uh, I, I got nothing to add to that. I got And I got no 1920s slang, although I'll keep looking here. Oh, uh, wait a sec. What's this? Uh, berries. She's berries, which also means the bee's knees denotes something that is good, desirable, or pleasing. That sounds like berries to me. Awesome. <laughs> Let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Thank He's- you, Kay. Maybe you've listened to this, but I doubt it. Yeah, uh, probably not. But thank you oh, for. By, la- by the way, we should congratulate Case, who just got engaged to be married. That's right, he did get engaged to, to Christina Lobata, who yeah. is an amazing production designer, amongst other things. 
well, she's also she's a, a writer, director. a writer and a director, yes. but she's she's done uh, a lot of she's yes, she has. They're they're both multi hyphenates. Neither of them need any of us. Can you imagine what what stuff they will like conquer the world together? Like, it's we're, like we're all screwed. I mean, we, we should all just stop. We, we, no, no competing with that with that team. Okay, uh, let's thank uh, Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who uh, manages to make us not sound like inarticulate fools that we are. <laughs> I, again, ditto. Can't 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 say it any better. Thank you again, Ben Katz. Oh, and uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up uh, b- right before we go uh, is friend uh, a friend of both of ours, mm-hmm. Zubi Mohammed. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, listened to the last episode, the Walt Lloyd episode, and he was interested in causality, the software I was talking about. Mm-hmm. So he went ahead and ponied up, and he's using it on a project right now. Oh, I was thinking maybe we could get a. Uh, I mean, like I'm also kind of working on a thing with it, but again, uh, swear jar because I have a baby. <laughs> I'm not making as fast a progress as I would like to. <laughs> I, I have causality. I'm messing around with it. Yeah, but Zuby. That, that man's a he, focused person. He has no children. He can. He, he has can, no no children, which is sort of like them. the shackles are off, and he's just running and running. So uh, maybe we can uh, get Zuby to give us uh, the lowdown on how he feels about causality after he's a little bit more into it. I love that idea. All right. Well, then until until next time, uh, I got nothing to say. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm not gonna add anything to that. Yeah. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.